Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. So we're in uh, 2 Samuel this morning and for the rest of our term. And those who have been around for a while will remember that we were in 1 Samuel up until the summer of 2018. Um, and one of the, I think, interesting things about the books of 1 and 2 Samuel is that they are the same book. That when written, composed, put together originally, there was simply a book of Samuel. And uh, to make things easier for you and I, and especially for our old Greek friends who used to have their Bibles on long scrolls, they divided it into two halves, one Samuel and two Samuel, so that they could have one scroll of one book and one scroll of the other book. But they are essentially one book. They are actually, not even essentially, really, they are one book. Um, And so we're coming back to that one book at 2 Samuel chapter 1, um, and it's something of a watershed uh, point, and it, it really does make sense, not just by volume, but in how the story is constructed, why this was the point chosen to separate the books. But I want us just to think back about 1 Samuel. Uh, I'd encourage you, before we really get into 2 Samuel this term, to spend some time this week, next week, however long it takes you, to refresh yourselves, to refresh your memories with the things that have gone on. 1 Samuel was a story about power in many senses. It was about the people of Israel rejecting God, his power, his authority, and insisting on having a king over them like all the other nations. So they rejected God. They rejected his power. And the person who is given to them by God, the king that they ask for, is a gentleman called Saul. And he is a king like the king in all the other nations. He is the one If not a little bit surprising to begin with, when you stop and think about it, yes, it makes sense. He should be in charge. He's the tallest. He's the most handsome. He's strong. He's shrewd. He does not shrink back in situations. He's ruthless. He has all these qualities that, if you especially look at the circumstances, the culture, the society they're in, made him a perfect king to be the one that the people asked for. But the story... It's a a negative story. It's a sad story because they've rejected God. They've asked for their own king, and God has promised them that the king that they want, the king that they will ask for, will actually end up leading them to ruin. And Saul, while he is mighty in many senses, in many battles, he is not someone who trusts in God. He is not someone who listens to God's voice. He is not someone who rules the nation as God would want a king to rule his special people. There is no justice. There is quite um, a lot of unsavory business that goes on. You might remember the story where he has all the priests slaughtered because one of them apparently, in his opinion, withheld information. Half of his life or half of his reign is completely dominated by this idea that he has to get King David, who isn't king yet, but enters into the story as just a boy. He's a man who's twisted. He's a man who's willing to do anything to hold on to the power that he has. Power is a big part of his life and the decisions that he makes. But there's another character 
shepherd, the least likely person that we would choose, that the nation of Israel would choose as king, he's called David. And he's the least likely because he's the youngest um, in a small tribe from a small family, all, all this sort of thing. He spends his days out in the fields looking after the sheep. Um, and there's no sense in which this is the king that they would choose for themselves. But we find out that this is the king that God is choosing for them. And that's the, really the big difference between Saul and David. It's very easy to come to our Bibles and try and cast people in the role of hero and villain. But when you read 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, perhaps you'd be fair coming to the conclusion maybe at the end that David is an even worse individual, morally speaking, ethically speaking, than Saul. Because he does some absolutely horrendous things. The big difference is that Saul is the king that the people have chosen for themselves in rebellion against God, whereas David is the one who God chooses to be king, who God gives power and authority to. Now, that becomes semi-public knowledge, and it's one of the things that really twists Saul's mind, really twists his heart. He's desperate to get David. He's desperate to kill the man he thinks is going to steal his throne from him. And David actually has a couple of opportunities to do that. Two specifically uh, mentioned in 1 Samuel. Two opportunities for David to kill Saul, to assassinate him, and to walk trouble-free, problem-free, right onto the throne. But David isn't the sort of king that the people would choose. He isn't ruthless. He doesn't listen to his own voice or the voice simply of those people who are close to him. He listens to the voice of God, and he knows that for the time being, Saul is the anointed king of God's people. So he refuses to grab power, to snatch power, to ascend to the throne with blood on his hands. He does many other things. He works hard for Saul, a man who is trying to kill him. He works hard. He leads many um, armies into battles and, and, and really functions like a king in the lot of 1 Samuel, but at no point does he choose to try and grasp that power and to wrestle with that power himself? Now, I'm laboring like this recap because it's important to know the context, um, but also this narrative of power because power and authority and the idea of getting things and taking them for ourselves is really, really relevant for us today. One of the things that absolutely blew me away as we went through 1 Samuel was how relevant and how similar the sorts of things these people went through as we do today. Uh, David lives in a cave. Uh, David, for a dowry, has to bring hundreds of foreskins of his enemies. And there are so many things like that that make it a weird and, if you're that way inclined, wonderful book. But how just normal and relatable the things that they went through and grappled with. And I think this idea of having something that we kind of sort of know should be ours and being willing to take it and snatch it, especially in terms of power and authority and respect and position, that is something that is just, some, we all have to deal with it. And so as we begin 2 Samuel chapter 1, we're confronted with something that is really, really relevant for us all. Now, I spoke about it being a transition point, about it being a sensible place for the uh, book to be divided. And that's because 1 Samuel ends with Saul dying in battle. So that king that the people have chosen for themselves, that ruthless, self-centered, power-hungry person, has died. 
And Samuel, uh, to Samuel, chapters 1 onwards, really uh, plot the path and the course that David takes to ascend now to the throne. And it's a pivotal point, it's a transition point, and that is where we pick up the story. With one king having been slayed in battle, and the king in waiting being notified of that. So I'm going to read 2 Samuel chapter 1, and something like the first... Uh, 16 verses. If you want to read along, please do join in. If you don't have your Bibles, then just pay attention and listen. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziglag. You go back, you read 1 Samuel, that'll make sense. That's all exactly what has been going on. On the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. David's desperate to know. He knows that his, his people, the people he loves and cares about, have been in this battle, this furious battle, and now he wants to know what's happened. He answered the Amalekite man, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were were closing in on him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called out to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and I killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armor that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to you, my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and they wept And they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord, for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, where did you come from? Uh, He said to the young man who had told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, and I am an Amalekite. David said to him, how is it then that you were not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. There's a lot of stuff that needs to be kind of clarified there. Actually, what is going on? Um, Amalekites are neighbors to Israel. They're uh, another people group, at some points enemies, at some points kind of Um, friendly on reasonable terms. Um, Actually, this Amalekite man confesses that he is someone who is like naturalized to Israel. That though his heritage goes back to another nation, he and his family have come and they've settled in Israel and they are happy and accepted and part of the nation. And he comes to David with this news. Now, having listened to that story already, what do you think that Amalekite man is expecting to happen? What would we expect in that situation? David had an enemy called Saul, a man who 
chased him. A man who on several encounters face to face tried to kill him with a spear. A man who uh, poisoned other people's minds to David and declared him an enemy of the state. What do you think this man, bearing this news and bearing the crown that he thinks David is going to put on his head, is expecting to happen? Surely his expectations is that he is going to come with this news. Your great enemy is dead. The way is clear. David, here's the crown. Go to the throne. He's expecting reward. He's expecting a celebration. He's expecting feasting, singing, and dancing. David and his followers' lives have been miserable. They've been living in caves. They've been on the run. They've been thirsty. They've been starving. They've been wanted men, hunted. And now here comes someone with, we would probably expect, and he certainly did, the greatest news of all. The corrupt king is gone. Long live the new king. It's interesting, perhaps even baffling, to read how David actually responds, though. David responds not with feasting, but with fasting. Not with celebrating, but with mourning. If you know David at all, and I've mentioned these kind of stories already, David is not the sort of person who grasps at power for himself. Like this news, this situation had been something that had presented itself time and time again to David. There are many things that he does wrong in his life, but this is one of the areas we can genuinely look at him as a positive example where he is in this sphere, at the cave, at the camp, and later on into Samuel with another character, where he shows control, restraint, and genuine humility. It's hard for us to measure up, marry up in our minds how he can view Saul, his great enemy, also as the king over the nation, of how he can mourn the loss of someone who had treated him so poorly. Are Are we shocked? Are we surprised? I certainly was when I read it. And yet we know from the life of Jesus that David's response is the better response. That David's response is the truer, fairer, greater response. We think about Jesus, how he lived, how he's described in the New Testament as someone who came to his enemies, someone who suffered for his enemies, someone who died for his enemies who prayed for his enemies, who wept over his enemies while all this was going on. He was a true king with true power, and he didn't act or live or treat people at all as we would expect. More than that, Jesus taught us and others to act in a very Davidic sort of way. In Mark chapter 4, he specific, in Mark chapter 10, I beg your pardon, he specifically takes up this idea of power on authority. And Jesus is keen to point out, isn't he, that the way that we normally process these things, as we'd expect David to in this situation, as the Amalekite man certainly expected David, isn't how things should go in Jesus' world, in Jesus' kingdom. The end of uh, Mark chapter 10, 
they're arguing about uh, who is the greatest amongst the disciples. And this is what Jesus says to them. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over people. Those in high positions act as tyrants over them. That's just the world we live in, okay? The world we live in is if you've got power, use it for your own ends. You use it for your own advancement. If you've got it, you certainly don't let it go. You lord it over people. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first has to be willing to be slave to all. For even the Son of Man, Jesus speaking about himself, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, when we've got that sort of teaching, that sort of idea, that sort of uh, way of living and world in our minds, what David does isn't surprising at all, is it? Here's the Amalekite man expecting David, here's us expecting David to be thrilled, to snatch, to steal, to climb, to push others down in order to get on that throne. But first, David, what does he do? He weeps, he mourns, he grieves, he fasts, he tears his clothes. He does everything that would signify that he is genuinely sad that Saul has died. We would say, look, David, we understand it. You and Jonathan were close. That's what's going on in this situation. David and Jonathan had a really close relationship. There's a sense in which, and we were discussing this in the week, that their kind of bond, their relationship was like identical twins. They, like knew, they knew each other's thinking. They knew each other's hearts. They supported. They encouraged one another. Um, and so what we see here is David and his men grieving over Jonathan, um, but politely including Saul's name in that. But again, I, I don't think that's the case, especially when we think about how Jesus lived and how Jesus taught about how we relate to people we don't like, people we hate, people we would consider our enemies. In Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon of the Mount, um, he's teaching about how we relate to other people. And this is what he says. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor. That's true. And hate your enemy. That's not in the Bible. But I tell you, this is Jesus commanding his followers, teaching them what life should be like in his world, in his kingdom, the place that we were glimpsing last week. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. Jesus' expectations for what happens in life aren't anywhere near the expectations that we so naturally bring. He says, if there's somebody out to get you, pray for them, love them, care about them, even to the point that when they die, when they, when they fall, when they trip up, when their power is taken away from them to your advantage, mourn, weep, grieve, be sad. A man has died. That's the turning point in the books. 1 Samuel to 2 Samuel. God's people's king has died. And David is so clear. In spite of the wonderful opportunity that this is presenting him, this is not something that I can rejoice about. 
This is not something I can celebrate. This is not something I can reward the person who is even bringing me this news. David here is showing why he is described as a man who's after God's own heart. He weeps over those even who have rejected him, persecuted him, rebelled against him, and tried to kill him. Let's look again at that. David took hold of his clothes and he tore them. So did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord, for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Then down in verse 17, this is what John read earlier. David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said it should be taught to all the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not on the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice and lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. This is sad news, he says. You mountains of Gilboa, where Saul was killed. Let there be no dew or rain upon you, no fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain and from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. In life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Your daughters, you daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. He who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold in your apparel, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on the high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant you have been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war have perished. We get it when he grieves over Jonathan. That's to be expected. Someone he loved, that makes total sense. But to grieve over Saul, I just, it's baffling to us, isn't it? This is someone who has made his life a misery. But I think that amazement that we bring to the text shows us how otherworldly God's kingdom is to the world that we live in. We can scarcely understand it, that you would mourn for someone who makes your life a misery. Now, so often in our lives, we will take someone else's wrong actions, someone else's sin, and make them an excuse for us to behave inappropriately. Do you know what I mean? Like when you've got two kids, they're fighting, one kid punches another, and they say, well, I had to do it because they called me a rude name. They've acted badly, therefore excuse, chance for me to act badly as well. I think one of the things that we learn from this story is this, that when other people treat us badly, when other people sin against us, when other people persecute us and wrong us, it's an opportunity for us to respond in kind. But it's, it's not really an excuse. What we're called to do, how we're called to live, Jesus' example, David's example, Jesus' instruction is that we never let it truly rule us, never let it truly affect 
how we live our lives. We can think about this story as well, not just from David's perspective, but the entire nation's perspective. David, as the now king in waiting, doesn't just grieve himself, but he encourages other people to share in that grief. He doesn't just lament himself, but he writes this lament, and he says, everybody should learn this. He says, people, you should be singing out, Saul, 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 the one who um, ruled, um, dressed us in scarlet, and then weeping over him. Now, again, if we trace back, if we go back into 1 Samuel, Saul, at points, is a wonderful king. He comes in, he saves the day. That's like one of the very first things he does. When there's um, a little summary of his rule, it's of battles won. It's of alleviating stress and situations. But in other places, when we zoom in on his life, he's a horrendous king for the people. He's someone who takes from the people. He's someone who murders his own people. He's someone who leads his own people into death and suffering. And so what David is doing isn't just showing us how someone should grieve even for the loss of their enemies. He isn't just showing us how he considers power and authority not as something to be snatched and celebrated, but something to wait for humbly to be given from God. But he's literally teaching the people, and this is how you should feel. Saul who I know we could sit around and we could slag off for hours together. We could list the ways in which he was terrible. Don't do that. Don't do that. Remember the good parts. Remember how he was a king who brought prosperity in certain ways. Remember how he was a king who put his neck on the line for you. Remember how he was a king who defeated your enemies. David doesn't just live out this countercultural, this counterintuitive way of viewing things, but he instructs everyone around him to do exactly the same. And I think that's a little bit how, like how we are with Jesus, that he is someone who came to Jerusalem, to the city that would reject him, the city that would condemn him, the city that would crucify him, and what did he do? He wept. He wept for the people who he knew would hang him up. As he was being crucified, as he was being taunted, as they were dividing his clothes among them, what did he do? He prayed for them. Now, we see there so clearly that we have a king who lives and treats power and authority and relationships and enemies and friends completely different to how we would. But he encourages us. He instructs us. If we want to be citizens in his kingdom, we should do likewise. Life in Jesus' kingdom is fundamentally different to life in the world that we know and love. It starts with a king, and it's supposed to flow down and work its way out in all the lives of its citizens. So what? Quickly finish two thoughts. This is great news for us, because we can be citizens in a kingdom under a king who doesn't treat us as we expect a king to treat us. We can be part of a family 
we can have relationship with God and a God who does not treat us as we should expect Him to. His authority structures, they work, work themselves out totally different. Just because He's the highest up does not mean that He's not willing to become the lowest of all. Just because we have turned our backs on Him, just because we have ignored Him, just because we have literally lived our lives facing the other direction to the way that He calls us and encourages us to live, doesn't mean that He's going to use that as an excuse to come to us with anger and wrath and judgment. This is good news because our King is this sort of King who even when faced with the downfall of His enemy, weeps. In Jesus, actually, we've got something far greater. We've got someone who is willing to sacrifice his own life to see that that enemy that has fallen so far is lifted so high up. There are lots of ways of describing the gospel. There are lots of ways of explaining Christianity. But if you're here for the first time, let me just try and explain it in these sorts of terms. Jesus is a king. We have rejected him. We have tried to kick him out of our nation. We'd expect that king to come back and to kick out all those people who had opposed him. Jesus is the one who comes back and dies for us so that we can carry on living in that kingdom. So what, number one, is such good news, such good news that we've got a king like this who just blows our minds, blows our categories, doesn't see power and authority, something to be grasped or something to be wielded, but something to be laid aside for the benefit of others. So what, number two, we've got a king who invites us to live in exactly the same way. This is something that should flow from Jesus into his people. Uh, we live in a world where that isn't um, commended. We live in a world where that isn't encouraged. We live in a world where if we live like this, it will be questioned. How? How can you weep for Saul, David? That does, it genuinely, it makes no sense. Jesus, how can you come and intentionally die for those people who have strung you up? How, when they are in the process of crucifying, can you pray for them to be forgiven? It literally doesn't make sense. Our, our, our brains aren't wired to take it. Our world certainly isn't. But Jesus calls us to live like that, to be people like David who don't see other people's sin as an excuse for us to sin ourselves, who don't see getting one over on our enemies as something preferential, who don't see that uh, same way of living as Saul does. I will step on whoever I want to get to the top. Jesus invites us to start living that beautiful, eternal kingdom we were looking at last week, right now. And it's a world, it's a society, it's a family where the cultural norms, to heck with them, throw them out the window. We live like our king. We're willing to lay things aside. We're willing to forgive even when it costs us. We're willing to show grace to those people who naturally were inclined to reject. We will weep for those who, for whatever reason, have become our enemies. We will pray for those who persecute us. We will love those who say things and do things which hurt because that's, that's the cultural norm for the kingdom that Jesus has come to create. That is how his people live in his world. We're going to 
sing together about that now. Lord God, we thank you that Jesus is a king totally unlike any other. That David here uh, shows us a glimpse of how we should live and respond. Lord, of how that is supposed to filter down from the king at the top into the people. Lord, we're still baffled by it. We still don't understand it. And so our prayer now this morning should be, Lord, help us to live this out. If we try to do it in our own strength, we will just end up being secretly happy when people we hate fall down. That we will be um, not so secretly quick to jump and to seize power and authority and privilege and prestige and comfort and all these sorts of things, even at the expense of others. Lord, perhaps we'll keep coming to Jesus, expecting him to treat us as we would expect in our world. Lord, by your spirit at work in us, help us to see how Jesus is altogether different and how we as his people are to live altogether differently. Be with us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that you found today's message useful and challenging. And we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now. Why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amfordchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss. If you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church, make sure to like us on Facebook. And lastly, check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts. Thanks for listening.